Welcome to Big Tent Radio on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. And uh, I'm your uh, host today, Luke Fowler, here with my colleagues from the School of Public Service at Boise State, Jen Schneider and Charlie Hunt. And we've got, uh, you know, a couple big stories to talk about, national headlines, fun election stuff and shenanigans in Congress. And I like that you're like, it's a couple of big stories. A couple of big stories. <laughs> a couple of big, like... <laughs> Earth-shattering, <laughs> watershed moments in American I, political history. Oh, I'm not, I'm not that old, but this is probably like the biggest news week of my entire life. Basically, oh, so. no, just that's a, really just been something. Little, just a couple little stories here and there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so let's start with. We'll go with the 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 one that might be the least important historically. <laughs> what up? What happened in Iowa? Because I hear um, from my, my extensive news watching uh, that there was this thing called a, a caucuses, but it did not really go very well for the uh, Democrats and uh, how it was organized. Is that correct, Charlie? I'd say that's a pretty accurate uh, summation. It certainly did not go how the Democrats hoped it would. Uh, and we're not necessarily talking about the actual results, which we'll get to in our next segment. But in terms of how it was administered, uh, which was a bit of a cluster as the kids say. Um, and, and I'm glad you're here to tell us what the youth say because me and Jen have no idea. Luke and I are looking at I each other I'm with here. puzzled, yeah, puzzled I've got, expressions. I have no idea what the kids say. Can I just offer a small correction, though, which is that I think it was administered the way it's always been administered. It was right. just reported differently. Yeah. So there Hot are... take. So, yes. Well, I, I, think it's, I think it's the right take because, you know, there's, there's question... There are a few different reasons why things got so complicated the other day. So um, the first reason is that they used this uh, this application, this phone application, to report the individual results from different precincts uh, to sort of the main party headquarters. And this app totally failed on the night. The, apparently there was a coding error of some kind. There was supposed to be a backup plan in place for phoning in the results instead of just sending them through the internets. And uh, <laughs> that failed as well. Um, so that wasn't great. But what compounded the issue is what I think Jen is alluding to, which is that this year, in an effort to be radically transparent, which is you know laudable, the Democrats wanted to release you know, these uh, different sets of results from, you know, what they called the first alignment. So when voters, you know, went in their corners the first time, the second alignment and these uh, these uh, delegate estimates from each precinct. And they wanted to release all of this in an effort to be totally transparent. And what reporters noticed afterwards is that these results were deeply inconsistent. There were errors all over the place in terms of the reporting inconsistencies and uh and it sort of raised the question of whether this is something that has happened before, but we just haven't known about it, um, which is a very troubling, uh, a very troubling question. And I think the other thing that made this really complicated is that it was actually really close between uh, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg, and we'll get to the implications of that later. But I think that whole combination of issues made it really, uh, really complicated for the Democrats. I think that's absolutely right. And I might even just back up a little more and say, for folks who haven't participated in a caucus or haven't seen it on TV, the whole process itself is inherently messy. I mean, you're showing up, you have a particular candidate that you want to argue for or caucus on behalf of, and you're trying to convince the group of people you're with to come to your side, right? So I think... That's both its strength and its weak weakness. It's it's the strength because it's sort of like <laughs> 
politics in its most pure form, like you're getting together with other citizens and having these debates. But what ended up happening is what always happens, we just actually see it now, thank you Twitter, uh, is there were a lot of sort of close calls and a lot of decisions made by things like coin tosses. Right. And so then, thank goodness there were paper recordings of these results, but what Charlie's underscoring is that even the paper reporting, even once the app failed, and we go back and we tally these paper results, the tallying was wrong. Right. Right? And so it leads people to ask exactly the question Charlie posed, which is, we got it wrong now when the eyes of the world are on this process, like election security is on the agenda and we screwed it up in Iowa, like the most visible place in the world. Has this just how been how it always is? Like, yeah. should Howard Dean be president? Right. To quote a, a colleague of mine from Twitter. <laughs> um, and I think that's exactly the sort of like earth-shaking result of this mess. Well, and I think uh, for those of us that, that study election systems and, and all of this, not like I'm an election scholar or anything, but that, that watch these things closely, like, there's always these problems every year. And we're not talking about uh, every four years. We're talking about every year, particularly in state yep. and local elections. Um, I mean, honestly, the paper, like, when we go back to in technology and people just fill out paper, that was way less messy than what it is with technology and the technological fa- failures that go on. Um, and so I think it just really highlights... Um, whether or not our, our elections are legitimate in a lot of ways, and which is the the foundation of our democracy. And I think it's uh, raising some questions that nobody really wants to answer or really think about, particularly as we've challenged the legitimacy of the 2016 election for three and a half years. But holy cow, even paper ballots are not infallible. In fact, they're far from it, right? right. I mean, these are like volunteer-run systems. There's all sorts of handoffs happening. So, I mean, that we know the system is imperfect, and so the question is, are we just now seeing it? Do we just now have really good evidence of it? And this has been going on all along? Or is this, in fact, like a mess of novel proportions. Yeah, I mean, I I wonder how much of this do we think is because our, at least in the U.S., our elections are administered in this kind of ad hoc way at the state and local level as opposed to all being federally administered. And, you know, we we know, for example, that, I mean, we know we have different rules about voting, particularly in primaries. We have different rules about voting in different states. You know, some states use caucuses. Other states, like New Hampshire, which is next week, uses, uh, uses primaries. And it does kind of, you know, if a lot of arguments to be had about federalism, but it does raise some questions, especially if there are going to be weird disparities and how accurate, how much faith and legitimacy we can have in the outcomes of elections in each of these states. Yeah, I mean, and that's not just inconsistency across states, it's inconsistency within states. Right. I mean, certainly, like, when we're looking at, at urban areas with more sophisticated, well-funded governments, we have full-time people that do this, but when we get out in the rural areas, particularly anything like places in Idaho, I mean, they have one full-time employee there that is trying to run elections, it's all volunteer-based, people that do it every four years, and so the farther we get away from that, the less sophisticated our election systems come, and I mean, again, that's the foundation of our government are supposed to be, and so this just really raises some difficult questions. And I think one I do think one possible good outcome to perhaps come from this is that in this absolute disaster you know there may be serious talk about reforming the process and having it be more consistent maybe switching to another state letting someone else go first uh, or at the very least switching Iowa to a primary or some other kind of system that uh, doesn't create these kind of issues I mean uh, policy changes stuff to make happen but uh, but a disaster like this is is a good way to start. I just want to give a shout out to our colleague Steve Udick, who has a great piece out in Wallet Hub today, where he sort of looks at the what what 
changes could be made and the ramifications of making those changes. In particular, he says, you know, if, whatever you do, if you pick a different state to go, a different state to go first, there are going to be problems with that. And there are also issues with having everybody go on the same day because it's going to give special preference to those who have the most name recognition, for example. And that doesn't always lead to electing the best candidate. So interesting things to think about. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about well, I guess those results yeah. <laughs> for whatever they're worth. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sadie Mayhem of Femme Fatale, and you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. All right, we're back on Big Tent Radio. Um, following up our discussion on uh, Iowa and the caucuses and the... Which is know. different from Idaho, just a reminder. Yes, for all of those that are listening today, we're in Idaho. That has a D in it. You're not in Iowa. Um, if you're in the wrong place, uh, please consult a uh, law enforcement officer, some type of public <laughs> official, to help you get to where you need to be. All right, so back to Iowa. Uh, so the caucuses were an interesting series of events, um, but we actually did get results, and supposedly these are going to help us uh, choose a nominee for the Democratic presidential nomination. Uh, Charlie, what were those results? Well, uh, so we should say, first of all, that we do not yet have a series of results that we can be 100% confident in as of this taping. Okay, so, and it, and it may not happen for a little while. We do know the broad contours of what happened, which is that, you know, we had, despite both campaigns claiming victory, uh, kind of a split decision between. Uh, Bernie Sanders, who was expected to do very well, and and uh, South Bend Mayor uh, Pete Buttigieg, who was expected to do well, but I think probably overperformed expectations pretty significantly. He's it, as of now, it looks like they're roughly going to tie in terms of delegates, and they're roughly going to tie in terms of the actual popular vote that ended up going to to both of them. Uh, and and so you know one element of this is that they're both claiming victory. Uh, you know there are questions of of how long each of them can last in this race, especially when you know we think of the the person we uh, had been thinking about as the front runner basically this entire campaign, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, significantly, I think, underperformed expectations. I mean, he was not necessarily expected to win, but he came in a fairly distant fourth. Uh, basically, however, you whatever metric you use came in behind Elizabeth Warren as well as Buttigieg and, and Sanders. So that's, so that's one question we have sort of going into New Hampshire next week. So uh, particularly this early in the stage, uh, the nomination process, like we talk about expectations and how candidates perform in terms of those. So what candidates, you already uh, mentioned Mayor Pete, what candidates do you think overperform based on expectations? Yeah, I think I think Mayor Pete, I think actually it's sort of getting lost in the shuffle because she came in third, but I actually think Elizabeth Warren overperformed slightly the polling that had been done in Iowa uh, leading up to the caucus. Um, and she's, you know, in a similar position in New Hampshire. And so, you know, one question I have going into next week is, can Elizabeth Warren break into the top two? If she can, then she is probably has still some legs in this race and could maybe be a consensus nominee down the road. Uh, and then, you know, in terms of other, you know, Amy Klobuchar overperformed in some areas, but I think she really needed to come into the top four or three in order to make an impact later in the race. And so... Um, 
other other than that, I would say Mayor Pete was was sort of the main standout in that category. Can I just jump in here and say that I think that really underscores his ground game. I think yeah. there's been some really good reporting that suggests that he's inherited <clears throat> quite a lot of the Obama yeah. apparatus, election apparatus, which is, you know, a well-oiled machine. And I think this explains a lot the discrepancy we're seeing between his results and Biden's results. So Mayor Pete overperformed and Biden underperformed. And I think that suggests that the Biden campaign just doesn't quite have it together. I think there are some problems with that candidate as well in terms of how well he's revving up audiences and things like that. But man, with the sort of uh, mess we saw in Iowa and what you're going to need to go up against a a well-organized Trump campaign, I think having that, those pieces of the campaign in place really matter. And I think think that's a great point. And it highlights this distinction between, uh, between Buttigieg and Biden, which is you know, Buttigieg has a ton, a ton, a ton of money. He raised two or three million bucks just in the 24 hours after Iowa. Um, he and Bernie have sort of long been the fundraising leaders, whereas Biden has really suffered in that area. He's been a distant fourth behind Warren. Uh, but uh, Biden has, in terms of the polling, done much, much, much better with, for example, African-American voters, almost none of whom have voted yet and almost none of whom will vote until South Carolina, New Hampshire and Iowa, our listeners may understand, are very white states. And so uh, and that's a and uh, sort of the African-American constituency is one in which Mayor Pete has polled almost dead with 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 no support. One question I have going forward is whether that's going to change now that he is becoming more of a, a brand name, that he's won Iowa, he's positioned to do very well in New Hampshire. If he can win Iowa and New Hampshire, I'll be looking for whether he can cut into that that uh, that lead um, and demonstrate that he could be a good general election candidate against Donald Trump, because that seems to be driving. That's that's most Democratic voters number one concern going forward. I would say, too, that I think this is where his dynamism and charisma could come into play, yeah. that they, they he hasn't been campaigning as, as extensively in places like South Carolina. And I think in a sort of head to head competition, you go to one rally, you go to the other. I think Buttigieg is far outperforming Biden. He doesn't have the name recognition. I think there's a lot of confidence in Biden because he was part of the Obama administration among black voters. But we'll see if he can maintain that once people go in and see him. And I think those, I mean, the reporting is, suggests that his age is showing. Um, and I interpret that to mean that he's just not bringing as much energy as voters would like to see. And I think I think that's right. And I think that one other, uh, you know, I don't want to freak people out too much, but the in the sort of 538 models of the primary, uh, you know, the sort of the delegate race, the the candidate who gained the most besides uh, besides Mayor Pete and Bernie was no candidate at all. And so, uh, you know, they project, for example, that we have roughly a one in four chance of no candidate having enough delegates by the end of this thing. And, uh, you know, I don't need to tell you that would make for a wild convention. There would be, you know, if, if no candidate ends up getting, you know, the delegates needed, uh, that may create some some additional uh, additional divisions, but of course, you know that doesn't take into account whether or not candidates drop out between now and say Super Tuesday in a couple of weeks, and so a lot of things up in the air. Uh, so we still be have fun. the Bloomberg wild card too, right? Yeah. Which he has not been cam- campaigning in these early states. He plans to come in big in some of the later states like Nevada, and there's some interesting analyses out there that suggest that he could further sort of muddy the waters so 
any uh, any candidates that we expect to drop out before New Hampshire? I think in terms of the main candidates, I wouldn't expect any of those top five to drop. I mean, uh, it's possible that Klobuchar will, but I think she'll probably stick it out. It's just a few more days. Um, but I think the question is after New Hampshire. I think, for example, if Elizabeth Warren comes in fourth or less, you know, that'll raise some questions about how long she can really hold out. Um, and then I think it seems very possible that by Super Tuesday, which will be a couple weeks from from uh, from next week, when you know we have twenty something states all at once, uh, it's very possible it'll be a you know three person and depending you know pro- Bloomberg will probably stay in so four person maybe race by then in terms of that top four. Um, I don't see, uh, especially if Buttigieg does well in New Hampshire, I don't see him dropping out anytime soon. And Bernie's in it to win it. He'll be in it till the very end, and he'll have his sort of solid base of support. Um, and I'm, I mean, if, if Biden really flames out and, for example, can't win South Carolina, that'll raise some questions of whether he can really even stay in and maybe his campaign just collapses after that. Well, I'm famous for making predictions that are wrong on this show, but I would suspect that after New Hampshire, New Hampshire, we will New Hampshire, New Hampshire. Um, we'll lose Andrew Yang. I think he's oh, going to yes, drop right. out after this, so we can say goodbye to the Yang gang. Sorry, Yang gang, I forgot about <laughs> it. But uh. well, I mean, the the primaries. I mean, this is what uh, has been criticized for years, at least on the Democratic side. The primaries are supposed to be killing fields. Like you're supposed to see candidates drop out of every. So I mean, it's kind of a, a good thing when we see it. It's going to be very bad, as as you kind of mentioned, as we get through Super Tuesday and there's still four candidates in the. Field. I mean, that's just going to really da- hurt the, whoever the eventual nominee is. Yeah, I mean, in in this situation in previous years, you know, I mean, you had it down to, for example, I mean, pretty quickly, even by Iowa, it was pretty well down to, for example, Hillary, Barack Obama, and John Edwards in 2008, and then Edwards dropped out shortly after South Carolina. And so, um, and that was a tightly contested race, and there were only two of them. So, um, you know, what I'll be looking for is whether whether these lanes stay in place, whether it's a purely progressive versus moderate lane. Uh, Mayor Pete has kind of straddled both of those lanes. He's kind of had tried to have it both ways, but now he's sort of settled in the moderate lane. Will he be able to consolidate that support? Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not totally sure. And then, I, and then it also depends the kind of reaction sort of party establishment types have to Bernie now that I think he's pretty, uh, I think there's a very good, uh, sort of uh, case to make that Bernie's the sole front runner now. So we'll see. Well, on that note, we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to switch gears and talk about what's happening with the White House this week in the State of the Union address. So stay tuned. Mm, unexplained bacon. Radio Boise. It's like bacon for your ears. All right, we're back on uh, Big Tent Radio on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. And so uh, we're going from Iowa to Washington, D.C. in this last segment um, to talk about uh, the other big news stories that have been going on with uh, our illustrious president with uh, impeachment in the State of the Union. So some exciting things going on. Uh, Charlie is our chief national uh, news correspondent. Uh, why don't you give us a, a brief summary of what is happening with these stories? You've my been promoted. My, oh yeah, my my correspondent titles are changing every week. Uh, you wear a lot of hats around here. I do, I do. Um, so you know, first things first. Impeachment did wrap up this week. Uh, it sort of it says something about the week that we waited two segments to mention that oh, the you know 
the president was acquitted for crimes. Uh, yeah, but, that's like the third story. Like, right. It's not even the front page headline. That's right. Uh, but he he was acquitted uh, almost on party line votes, but not quite. Uh, there was one pretty notable exception that on the on the question of whether the president abuses power, that impeachment article. Uh, Mitt Romney, the Republican of Utah and previous uh, Republican presidential nominee, speaking of the nominating process, uh, uh, voted to convict the president and made, you know, a fairly impassioned speech on the floor of the Senate, talked about his conscience, how his faith guided his decision, and, um, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, immediately invoked both sort of praise from the left and absolute hellfire from the right uh and uh, you know he luckily has for luckily for him has a you know pretty sizable sort of personal brand and constituency and so i think he'll probably be fine in utah but it was uh, i was surprised it was pretty notable that it ended up not being a party line vote and it's probably something that the president was hoping for that it would be a party line vote so to deny him that is pretty it's pretty serious. I will say that as fellow Senator Mike Lee threw him under the bus pretty much big time on on Twitter today, um, he's um, tweeted out to the president of the United States that uh, nobody should have voted against acquittal. So um, a pretty decent shade thrown at his colleague. Yeah, yeah, I think he I think Mitt Romney is probably not the po- most popular member of his caucus uh, today. But you know he's he's getting older and he's thinking about his legacy and he has nothing left to prove i think in his eyes anyway and so um so that so that was an interesting uh development and you know needless to say the the president has been sort of gloating surprise surprise about uh being acquitted he keeps carrying around the washington post headline that says trump acquitted and he's very happy about that and made a shall we say fiery speech about it uh, today, uh, you know, calling Democrats evil and saying Nancy Pelosi is the worst person at the, the National world. Prayer Breakfast. Yes, yes, it was very, very mm-hmm. holy, holy, holy. So, um, but this sort of topped off, uh, you know, uh, the night before in which he gave his State of the Union address, which, um, which was sort of, you know, of a piece with this impeachment business because that's what most of us have been focused on, and I'm sure it was on his mind. Uh, I think we know it was on both his mind and Nancy Pelosi's mind uh, during the State of the Union. So, uh, of all of those events, like, what did you make? Like, does how does all of this change the balance of power in Washington? Is it just going back to where it was, let's say, two months ago before all this impeachment stuff started, or are we somewhere different? Well, we're certainly somewhere different. I mean, we've had a, you know a vote to convict or acquit, and. That's something that's only happened twice before, and that's significant whether anyone wants to admit it or not. Uh, I think Romney's vote is significant, but in terms of sort of where the electorate is at, I think probably it didn't change that much. But I think for, I, I think it is clear that Nancy Pelosi has kind of reached a breaking point. I think she's she is getting pretty impatient with the president, and you know has shown a lot of restraint at different parts of this process, but. It culminated as as you may have uh, seen at the State of the Union with you know her tearing up the president's speech at the end uh, you know on national television and uh, I think you know whether you think it was a calculated political move or not it was a sign of serious uh, frustration and you know she seems to be someone who can really get under his skin and 
as far as sort of an election strategy, I think there's a way in which that's something that Democrats might want to do if they think he'll sort of crumble under that pressure. But um, yeah, I think I think that's a big part of it. Can I say the most striking thing for me about the State of the Union was the utter unity with which the the right acted, right? Yeah. So if you watched Republicans during that address, there were frequent and, you know, sort of a united block of people standing up almost every few seconds for a standing ovation for the president's comments. So, of course, you had folks who are in the Democratic Party, many of them dressed in white, who sat for most of the address. But the Republicans were galvanized. They were behind their guy. There was a ton of energy. And I would not be surprised if that translates into energy for Trump's base as well. So I think that's a shift that we're going to see. He's Mm -hmm. never really been unpopular with his base. His approval numbers have stayed steady. But I think we're going to see an intensity from the right that we have not seen before. Yeah, I think, uh, if anything, this has just galvanized the base even more. Mm -hmm. I think going into all this impeachment stuff, uh, like there was a a weak coalition around Trump that was kind of tired and was kind of questioning, but I think they're coming out of this much more galvanized and and supporting him. Um, I think particularly that they accepted the the argument that if the president does it, it's in the national interest. Um, That was very Nixonian to a certain extent. But I think the the Republicans eating that up has just, I mean, created this where it doesn't matter what he does anymore. He's our president and we're going to support him. And I, I think that's been a shift and an important one. I think it's, I think in a way this was all kind of inevitable that Democratic base was never going to stand for it if they didn't try to impeach the president, if they didn't try and do even just try and do this, even if it was a fruitless effort. And uh, the Republican base was always going to galvanize around the president based on this issue. And so there is a way, uh, you know, you ask if anything changed. Maybe some things changed and history changed. But in a way, this is what we've sort of been inevitably hurtling towards that will all sort of come to a head in November. And you know, we'll see. We'll see who's who ends up galvanized more, and uh, you know whether Democrats can pull over enough. I do think the Democrats over. maybe have timing on their side. We are ten months away from yeah. the election, and boy, if the news cycles continue the way they have been, that is a lifetime away. And so there's a lot of opportunity for the left to sort of coalesce around their candidate of choice and uh, to build their ground game. So we'll see. We're still we're still a ways out. We are. We are. Maybe even too long. Um, All right. Well, thanks, everybody. It's been a great show. Uh, You've been listening to Big Tent Radio here on Radio Boise. We'll talk to you next week.